Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. 97.1 FM Talk Podcast. Welcome, welcome, one and all, to the Wiggins America Variety Hour. This hour, we're going to have a ton of variety. The next hour, it's going to be all the same thing. So next hour will be a monolith. This hour is a variety hour. I don't know what I'm talking about. Hello and good morning. Uh, Thank you for being here this morning. I do want to start with something that I think is tremendously important to the future of this country, and it's good news. Love being able to share some good news. Man, it seems like we've had nothing but bad news. I was sitting in a meeting earlier this week. And I don't know that I voiced this, but it just felt like everything we're talking about in the world is just bad news. And, you know, sometimes it's important to highlight those things to make sure that people aren't getting away with crap. But it's really nice to share some good news. And this is, I don't want to say national because it's not quite national, but it's certainly leading in the direction of being good for the whole country. This is coming out of Arizona. And honestly, it has nothing to do with Kerry Lake or Blake Masters or Abe Hamade. Uh, I pronounced his name wrong, Hamade. Or the Attorney General, I think his name is Mark Fincham. None of them have won yet, of course, but if they did, that would all be good news. This has nothing to do with any of them, <clears throat> but it is out of Arizona. So I've mentioned school choice being key to the future of this nation because right now, kids, unless you can afford it, uh, you got to send your kids to public school. And I, when I say gotta, it means you gotta. It is illegal to not do that unless you're homeschooling or you're sending them to private school. There's a lot of great private schools. There's a lot of good Christian schools and parochial schools and otherwise private schools. And homeschooling has risen in popularity by, uh, I think, a hundredfold or something like that. Don't quote me on that. But it's it's risen so much in the last 10 years even. Not just because of COVID, but because parents are concerned with what they're being taught in schools, what their kids are being taught. That's why school choice is so important, because it would create a brand new environment where education is competitive. That would not only help our country in terms of delivering smarter kids who are more prepared for the workforce or for creating businesses, whatever, you know, we're not necessarily trying to create little worker bees here. We're trying to prepare kids for a lifetime of contribution to society, whatever that looks like for our all of our precious little snowflake kids who are different, and every one of them has something different to offer, right? I use snowflake in a positive sense there. See, we can do this. Well, out of Arizona, families, this is written by Christine Accurso for Fox News, 
Arizona continues to push forward with school choice legislation. Now, they've already passed this. We've covered it on this show plenty that they've already passed a statewide school choice measure that allows anybody anywhere in the state to receive money and and put that money to whatever school they want. I think within their vicinity, maybe even not. Really, however far you want to travel so that your kids can go to the school that you want them to go to. It is up to you now in Arizona. I did say, though, that my guess was that this would be fought like crazy because the legislature passed it. Doug Ducey, the current governor, who will not be governor for much longer, signed it into law. So it was a law as of July 7th. Then union-backed organizations, school, anti-school choice, or you want to call them traditional school union um, organizations, immediately started organizing a campaign to gain enough signatures to refer it to the ballot, and that would have temporarily denied school choice to thousands of Arizona students, even though it had already been passed by the legislature and the governor. This was an attempt to delay it so that voters would have to vote on it directly instead of through their representatives. Now, you can agree or disagree with that. Sometimes I love that. Sometimes I don't like that, depending on the law. I don't really have any sort of philosophical reason to like or dislike it. But it was going to delay it, and that was the point. Whether voters would come back and and resoundingly say yes, we didn't know, but it looked like they would because it's a very popular issue, but it would delay it. The good news is not only did they pass all this through the legislature and then the governor, it didn't even get enough signatures to go to the ballot. That's how much Arizona and parents, and I don't think it's just Arizona, I think parents in general want school choice. They couldn't, even with all this money, get enough signatures to put it on the ballot. And it's not even that many signatures. A couple hundred thousand signatures is all they need. They couldn't do it. So Arizona, they are full in on school choice coming soon to a state near you. Love to see Arizona leading the way on this and love to see what they're going to determine because ultimately... There will be problems with it. There will be. It's a brand new program. But they'll work out the, the kinks, and you'll start to see this happen in states across this country. More Wiggins America coming up. We'll try to stick with good news. I don't know. We'll, have, we'll see what's coming up next. We're going to talk to the guy who saved Barney the dinosaur. I don't know if that's good news, but that's next. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to 
other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. 97.1 FM Talk. Larry Rifkin is on the phone with us. He is uh, many things, but he is now the author of No Dead Air, Career Reflections from the TV Executive Who Saved Barney the Dinosaur from Extinction. So, Larry, good morning to you. Good morning, Ryan. How are you? So I love the title of the upcoming documentary that's been made, I guess, about you and uh, from Peacock (laughs) TV. Uh, By the way, I love Peacock. I love a lot of the programming that they have on there. Um, which is why I wanted to talk to you, because I love you, You Hate Me is the name of the documentary, which I think is is really funny. You must, uh, you must know your role in the entertainment world, having saved Barney. <laughs> well, let me say this, that I, I think there's a lot more love. And when I tell people about the tone of the documentary in terms of some of the issues that they raised about the backlash against Barney, honest to goodness, Ryan, there are people who say, I don't know that. <laughs> I didn't feel that. Uh, we love Barney. And uh, so many people telling me still to this day, I'm talking about 30 years later, that Barney was truly a signal program in their development, in the way that they look at life, and that uh, you know the songs are still there in their head, and they would love to share it with a new generation of uh, young people. So, I mean, I know the tack that was taken about whether, in fact, uh, a broken America might have started at this uh, <laughs> tremulous point back in the 90s. And, and there's some legitimacy, perhaps. Uh, but nonetheless, I think um, my focus and those of the people who were in the production throughout uh, was really more on making a program that was so age appropriate, uh, so wonderfully crafted for that uh, group of youngsters that we paid little attention to some of the pushback that might have been going on in frat houses and uh, in little circles online, but online wasn't quite what it is today then either. Well, Larry, I think you kind of hit the point there. It's that you got to remember who Barney's for, you know, if, you, if you're, if you're thinking that this is for somehow a, a teenager or something, then you're off the mark. You know, that that's, that's what gets lost in, it, it's an easy target for a kid who gets older to make fun of a show that's for younger <laughs> kids, right? That's the way no, it usually no, you're happens. right. And in fact, what I think is really fascinating, Ryan, think about it. In the book, I talk about the fact that when people ask me, well, what do you think any of this backlash was about? And I say, number one, Barney was a disruptor, an early disruptor in many families. By that, I mean this two-and-a-half, three-year-old 
was never that vocal <laughs> in what it was that they wanted early on. They were going along, and if the older, as you say, brother or sister, loved Power Rangers, well, they sat down and watched Power Rangers. When Barney came along, they recognized, hey, this is meant for me. This is what I love, because at that stage, they love to be educated and entertained at the same time. And Barney did that so well. I don't know if you're aware, but we had a survey or study done by a group that did television research at Yale University back in the day. And uh, this uh, husband and wife team determined that Barney had over 100 learning moments in every program, and they called it a nearly perfect preschool program. And I say in the documentary that to me, Barney was Fred Rogers going electric. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think that they're looking at what my kids are watching and now they're, you know, they're eight and they're five. So they're a little bit past that, but you know, we're just past that age. There Mm -hmm. isn't as much entertainment now that is educational. And so I, you know, as much flack as Barney gets, and I don't know that we were, we were a little bit outside the Barney zone just because it's not one of the most, you know, coveted shit. Bluey is what they were looking at now and stuff like that. <laughs> but, uh, but you, there's not as much education in little kids programming right now as when I was a kid. I, I noticed that for sure. Yeah. And don't forget, you know, PBS, the Holy grail of PBS programming is the children's programming. If you go back to the fact that Fred Rogers went in front of a congressional committee at a time when the PBS and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting were very new, even though PBS and public broadcasting was somewhat of an afterthought in America, whereas in Britain or Japan, the primary broadcaster was a public service broadcaster. But we turn that on its head in America, as we do many things. And it was really up to Fred Rogers to save our appropriation, which doesn't make up the bulk of our funding by any means, but it is a really important baseline. So really, what they were doing at PBS at the time that I discovered Barney in home video through my daughter's four-year-old eyes was that they were looking for something to complement Fred Rogers and Sesame Street. And they put us in a challenge. I don't know if most people understand this, but it was part of a test. Uh, And we were put up against Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chops Playhouse and Shining Time Station, which, of course, enveloped Thomas the Tank Engine. And so they got on the air before we did, Ryan, and they did all right, but they really didn't break out. And PBS could not afford to fund three new series simultaneously. We got on last April 6, 1992. And believe it or not, without any empirical evidence of what was really happening with this incredible phenomenon that was building, we were canceled. And so that's why I have the subtitle to my book uh, as the TV executive who saved Barney from extinction, because I mounted a campaign within the public uh, television system, and I was successful in turning back a decision a month later. Uh, Nobody knew we had been canceled because we still had the first 30 that were rolling out at the time. So I'm really proud of the fact that uh, uh, many of the programmers in the system, I'm sure the folks in St. Louis at the time and Miami and Baltimore and Philadelphia, and they sensed the tremor that was developing with Barney. And we pushed back on PBS. And to my recollection, 
it is the only decision that has ever been turned back since PBS went to a chief programming executive model. In the past, we used to vote on every program that would come onto public television. And we always said we wanted new programming. But guess what we did? We never voted to support any new programs. Therefore, many of the public television programs uh, were 20 and 30 years old by that time. Larry Rifkin on the phone with us. He's the subject of the documentary on Peacock right now, I Love You, You Hate Me. Um, So you hit on a couple things there that I do want to talk about before we run out of time because we're getting close here. Sure. But... um, when so you worked at PBS for years at PBS Connecticut, right? Right. I was part of a local station, but that's where programming comes from in our system. PBS by charter doesn't produce programming. I could explain that, but I do in the book. So yeah, and I'll leave I actually, it there. no, that's one of the reasons I asked it because uh, before I was doing this here radio job, uh, I I was an independent producer of material that was primarily targeted at PBS, and so mm. we uh, we figured out kind of. How to run through the systems of? Uh, we ended up using Nita, which is deep oh, stuff. Yeah, I for know. I know Nita. Most people yeah. <laughs> listening won't know what that means, but uh, <laughs> but you do. And yeah. so uh, I'm just letting you know that we, you know, we're pretty familiar with the PBS world. And before you go, you know, I just wanted to ask when you and other PBS um, heads at different different local PBS stations, like ours is nine PBS nine here in St. Louis. Right. How do you decide? which programming to pick. I mean, there is there a sort of a free market element to that that every station really is it is so independent that you can pick really whatever you want to run or does PBS National determine any of that? Well, that's a great question. I mean, they like you to keep the common carriage, if you will, and require a certain number of hours, but frankly, Ryan, uh my second kind of known achievement in the programming world was bringing University of Connecticut women's basketball to television. And we had the leg up on our commercial counterparts in the Connecticut market because they could not preempt that amount of programming in prime time, particularly during the winter, which was the highest viewing season. I knew that and took advantage when we had to go into competition with them to get the franchise. So the second thing that I'm known for, UConn Women's Basketball and ESPN was looking in at what we were doing. And I think a lot of the women's sports that you see on national television today derives from the success Uh, wild success that we've had with UConn women's basketball, but we were able to carve out our own schedule in Connecticut, allowing us to provide that kind of programming. Larry, before we let you go here, everything is moving, all entertainment and really anything Mm. that people are watching is moving toward a full free market uh, system. And I mean, YouTube in a sense is the ultimate free market because you can watch whatever you want, you know, anytime you want. Um, YouTube itself is not a free market because it uh, doesn't allow certain things on there. But I think what I'm saying is in the world we're heading into, and I want to know what your your expertise would speak to this. Sure. What is the future for PBS? You know, this is a it has been a TV staple for so long, but the market is moving away from TV. What do you see happening to to PBS? Well, PBS certainly is going with online programming and streaming and digitizing all of its content. So they're trying to stay relevant to what the technology is requiring today. The thing that I worry about most, you know, PBS 
and all of our local programmers are real good gatekeepers. So when you come to a PBS station, you know that somebody has put some care and thought uh, into the experience that you are going to derive from watching that program. Uh, the problem today is that there are no gatekeepers in many of the quarters that we're talking about. So it's really up to the individual who's listening to this program and then watching these programs to be a very, very discerning listener or viewer because they're getting content, whether it's a podcast, and I do a podcast now, or whether it's a television program that is done by someone out of their home. I mean, it may be entertaining, but, you know, has anybody really thought about it? It's like not having an editor at a newspaper. So I think you have to be very careful. And it's wonderful that we have this democratized system. But to me, I'm so glad that I brought a Barney out in the 19th. 90s. I don't know if it would have gotten lost today in the cacophony of everyone being a television station or producer. It's tough, isn't it? Yeah, it's the, the marketplace is much more jammed than it used to be. And I, I've, I don't quite go back, back probably as far as you do into the 90s, but I, I lived some of that world and I can see the difference even in five, ten years ago. So, yeah, Larry, I don't think Barney could have been yeah. the phenomenon that it is, uh, you know, still recognized to be. Right. Well, Larry, I really appreciate your time and your knowledge. Uh, the documentary is on Peacock TV. It's about you. It's, it's called I Love You, You Hate Me, which is a great title. Uh, and your book, No Dead Air, Career Reflections from the TV Executive Who Saved Barney the Dinosaur from Extinction. Where do you want people to go get that, Larry? And Amazon, clearly. Okay, Amazon. We'll send people to Amazon. And thanks for being here. More Wiggins America right around the corner. Thank you, Ryan. Trisha Seekins here. She is our first or second favorite co-host, so thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, the Barney guy, I thought that was just a unique interview. Yeah, you know, feel good. That's cool. <laughs> just whatever. It was Who just knew Barney a... almost almost didn't make it. Yeah, yeah. It's why I, when I saw it, I'm like, that's interesting enough. Plus, my own history with PBS, I just was like, oh, I want to know a little bit more about how that world works because I got a, I got a pretty good understanding of it when we were doing our show Song Stage. We did two seasons of it across PBS. Pretty much across across the country, that doesn't mean every market carried it. That's why PBS is weird, and I like learning about the way they do things because it's literally the only TV network that works bottom up rather than top down. So you have affiliates across the country on with uh, CBS or NBC or whoever that they're they're required to carry NBC's primetime lineup every day. Mm-hmm. And probably the Today Show and some of the morning stuff, for instance. And then throughout the day, they can play whatever they want. Well, with PBS, they're required, I think, to play nothing. Other than maybe they had a Downton Abbey requirement toward the end. <laughs> um, but Is very, that true? No, yeah, that's, that's true. I'm not, I'm not even making that up. But they, they do that very little because they want to make sure that it's all local. You know, like PBS 9 here can play whatever it wants. And that's so we took advantage of that being an independent show. And that's why independent producers will go to PBS is because Fox isn't going to look at Ryan Wiggins in St. Louis making a show, but PBS will. And then once PBS does, maybe Fox will look at it if it's successful enough. That mm-hmm. was the that was the business plan for us. Sure. And so the whole world of that just intrigues me. And I asked him right at the end there just about what do you see for the future of PBS? Because, you know, TV's dying, at least the traditional model of TV. And uh, 
he he kind of hit on this, and I, I I almost wanted to push back, but I'm like, we're right at the end of this thing, and I I've talked to so many people in that PBS world who are so addicted to the government money. It's not actually that much of their funding. If you really dive in, which we did when we were doing this, because we wanted to find out, you know, how much of this is coming from the government and how much of this is independent funding, because it affected the way we would pitch to stations. Mm -hmm. And we found out that really it's only about 8% of their entire budget, each station, and they fluctuate depending on how big their budgets are, really comes from public funding. It's not that much. But my argument is still that I don't think any public funding should be going to any media at this point. Thoughts? I go back and forth on that. It's how much of that, and I, I don't know how much of that money, what the restrictions are with that money. Does that make sense? Like if they're they're getting different funding. I think we work in a business that the employees in general are underpaid. And you can do a couple things about that. You can go in a into an NPR where they can they make more money over there because they have more funds Mm -hmm. than we do. Or you can unionize. What's the lesser of two evils? Or are we always going to be slaves to low wages? Mm -hmm. So from a wanting my peers and colleagues to be well taken care of because you can't you you aren't going to get the quality of employees that because people will only do this for sh- a short time for less unless money. they get paid yeah unless they get paid yeah, exactly. right and right. they're at this point there are a couple of ways to get paid and that's joining union shop mm-hmm. or work at a publicly funded station mm-hmm. uh, you know with government funds so i'm i'm not going to say point blank that i think that there shouldn't be money going into it. My tax dollars go into a lot of different things. If it if it builds up the like quality of of content and the, like gives gives the people in our industry a boost, I kind of say I'm okay with it. You're actually making without knowing so. Yeah. You're actually making really close to the argument <clears throat> that the PBS people make. And maybe the NPR people. I didn't get involved in that world sure. as much because we were. Doing and I don't TV. know. So I truly only know by looking at uh, job postings for mm-hmm. you know, you've got two positions, the exact same. One is NPR. One is I'm not even going to say our company, but a, a different company that is an NPR. The exact same job. You are getting significantly higher wages with a company like NPR. Being a conservative in that world, I can tell you that I was I was uh, rare. Sure. I, I'm not saying that sure. there were no conservatives mm-hmm. in the PBS world, but when we were doing this, we didn't lead with our political beliefs. I can tell you that. Yeah, no, you. I mean, you you can't, and that is right. how much of that, and that's why I'm assuming you don't want any public funds going to well. It is media. Yeah, so I'll, I'll explain their argument and. It's 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 different always when you and I are just sitting here talking and just talking about theoretically what why should we or why shouldn't we? Then when you talk to just like any, anywhere else, when you talk to the actual people who are affected by it, they make an impassioned plea. You're kind of doing that right now because you're talking about our industry and the people you're seeing in it. I want to benefit people. When you start getting to that level, it's hard to argue against people because they their hearts in the right spot. 
They're saying, I have colleagues who I really feel like are valuable who are going to leave because they don't make enough money. That's a that's a personal plea, you know? So it's hard, and it was hard when I would make relationships, and not that like every, every mm-hmm. station I would talk to I would get a good relationship with, but there were a few stations. We had to have a sponsoring station that we'd get to know the people pretty well. Well, then you're out having dinner with them and getting to know everybody, and you know everybody's not necessarily bringing up politics, but that kind of stuff ekes in about, well, we had to make so-and-so the general manager, and we didn't even want to, but we had to hire within because if we don't, we lose this funding for X, Y, Z. You know, that kind of stuff comes Aren't up. are there politics no matter what? There always are. In every industry? But in with, every... Yes, yes. But in this instance, you're actually literally talking about politic politics because <clears throat> you are talking about taxpayer money that's funding some of these things. And so it was difficult for me to stand on my laurels and talk to somebody Who's, who's saying, yeah, but Joe will lose a job if they don't do that, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, like, when you get to that level, it's hard to make this sort of, like, big political point, which I still agree with. I haven't changed my beliefs the, the about it. The big political point would be cut taxes, right? Would that's be that the, I don't that's think... That's the overarching yes. thing. Tax dollars don't need to go to media. You're, yeah, you're my friend. I'm telling you that I don't think you should get any more money. From the government. Well, you're, yeah, you're saying. Well, you're saying the industry doesn't get any more money from the government. The whole, yeah, you that's what I'm saying. Taxpayers I don't putting think any money, of it should. Yeah. Yes, and I get that, and that's libertarian, and that's conservative, and yeah. I understand that. The flip side of that, taking the human element out of it, is how much do you value the industry, and do you think that the industry is worth investing in? That's what's tough. Is that as I'm sitting there talking with people, going. I, I love your station. I love what you guys are doing, at least theoretically. I don't mm-hmm. love all of your programming, but I don't Yeah, but do do you love the industry enough to contribute to it? Do exactly. you think taxpayers should contribute to organizations that I mean, at the root of it it should be and I know that it, that's where it gets messy with the politics because then it's there's agendas and mm-hmm. but at the root of it it should be do we think the taxpayers should be contributing to something that is serving a greater good for the public? And that's that was Mr. Rogers' argument. That mm-hmm. was when he the famous he sits before Congress and shares what he does for children. That's hard to argue with because, and especially at the time, you'd go, "This actually is serving a public good in a way that otherwise may not be served." Now I believe that we've gotten to a place, and I don't know that I ever would have agreed with it, but at least back then to me the argument was stronger. Now we've gotten to a place where a lot of these shows do have an agenda, not just I want to educate children on ABCs. You know, not that Mm -hmm. Sesame Street is the best example for this, oddly, because Sesame Street was the PBS staple for generations. And I love Sesame Street. I grew up watching it. But that actually is not owned by PBS. It's now it's an HBO Max show. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. I didn't. Yeah, it's you won't find that on PBS anymore. But that is an example of if 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 it were still there, you know, there's some woke politics in that now. It's not as pervasive as we think it is. If you sat down and watched a show today, you may not notice anything. But once in a while it does come up. And that's just like anything else, that if you're going to have an agenda, then Please don't take my tax dollars to do it. You're free to, the libertarian says, you're free to do that. You're not free to make me pay for that. I would think that this goes even past agenda. Let's pretend we live in a perfect world where there is no agenda-based programming. 
and I'm going to come full circle here, and I'm going to say I agree that we shouldn't be paying for these things either. The taxpayers shouldn't. Back in the day of Mr. Rogers, and for years leading up to this point where we are in society, people didn't have the access that they did to consume media. Mm -hmm. So it was actually a public service to be able to turn on the television and get information. Yeah. Or to turn on your radio and get information. Now it's still a luxury, and I would say that free conservative radio, I am a believer in free radio and how it serves a greater good. At the root of what we do is still Mm community-based. But we are now working under a different set of parameters where that information is available at the tip of your fingertips all the time. So there is not the same, it's not the same commodity that it was, Mm -hmm. and is likely not necessarily needing the funding. Go ahead. It's hard for me because think about what more we could do if we could get a piece of that. You know, like if we could, if there was the Missouri state is flushed with all of this excess income and all of this revenue in Missouri, if we could get a piece of that, what more could we do? Oh, how, sure. S- how send could us we an extra half million dollars a year. Elevate our the, the product here would go way up. Yes, it would, and so mm-hmm. that's tempting. But I mean, we're we should be leading the charge on being ideologically pure on these things too. You're right, and saying Fine. you know what though, we don't want it. But that's not the way it we works. don't want because it. Because the flip side it. of this, the flip side is it ends up looking like Canadian TV and and British TV yeah. where it's all publicly funded mm-hmm. and it's all agenda-based, or at least a, a majority of it has an agenda, and you don't have any control over it. Yes, you're going to get some programming out of it that you wouldn't because you're, you're mandatory paying for it, but you also don't have a choice, and it, it limits your choices because you're limiting the free market. Okay, fine. I'm against it. Thank you. And thank, thank you. you. That is why you are my first or second favorite co-host, <laughs> because we get to end a segment on you going, oh, you win oh, again. Fine, you're right. I don't even care if I actually win an argument. If you say that at the end of a segment, I feel great. You win. That's, yes. That Now that's a great segment because it ended right there. We'll be right back. More Wiggins America. I heard that and had to bring it to the show. Uh, this is Wiggins America. I'm going to lead out, lead out. That I'm going to go out with that song, too. So we'll hear well, probably a good portion of it on the way out. The state of comedy. Man, we've had two presidents in a row now. Two presidents in a row that are really hard to parody. Now, you may think it's really easy to parody somebody with such a big personality as Trump or somebody who miffs his words so often as Biden. But I think it's the opposite. They're, they're such caricatures that it's almost redundant to caricature them. I know a lot of people said that about Trump when he was in office, that unless you can do a perfect impersonation of Trump, it's really not that funny to do bits about Trump because he's already a character. Usually you take an average person, you make him into a character, <clears throat> you find the comedy there. With, with him, you, you really couldn't do it. And that's why Alec Baldwin, who didn't have a great Trump impersonation, Failed so badly, not because Alec Baldwin can't do comedy. He can. He's actually done a lot of really good comedy. 30 Rock, he's been on Saturday Night Live a lot. He's been in comedies, movies. Uh, He's been in some serious movies, too. This isn't to defend Alec Baldwin. (laughs) It's just to say that uh, Trump is really hard to parody. Now, the same, I find the same to be true of Biden in a very, very different way. So when I host X's and O's or do things here at the station that involve Biden, 
a lot of times you're just highlighting some gaffe he's made. But to do it, <laughs> for instance, when I have AI software read back a Biden quote that's all messed up, the AI already sounds goofy. And then when you put in nonsensical words, it sounds like the AI just is malfunctioning. <laughs> so <laughs> the joke is kind of lost when you try to do that to Biden because it already sounds bad. The AI is supposed to make it sound worse, but it already sounds bad. So it's just, there's lots of stuff like that that make these guys uh, hard to parody. Now, I do think that it would be f- much funnier to see them make jokes about Biden on late night TV. Gutfeld obviously is doing it, and everybody goes to uh, impersonations as they think that we have to have somebody to impersonate the person to make good jokes. No, you don't really have to do that at all. You can make really good jokes without somebody who can impersonate a president or anybody, for that matter. I think Gutfeld actually does a pretty good job of that. Um, But he's the only one doing it. That's what's sad is that – and here's the thing. I actually think Gutfeld will, although we haven't seen a whole lot of him in action – under a Republican president is he had a weekend show. But I think that now that he's the top dog in late night, that if we had another Trump or we even had a DeSantis, he wouldn't hold back. He'd make fun of them because that's what comedy does. Flip coin. Flip side of the coin is that I don't think any of those other guys really are doing a very good job right now of making fun of Biden. And they didn't do a good job of making fun of Trump. They were just bad at it. Because they hated him and because they like Biden. So they let their politics lead instead of letting the comedy lead. I uh, am saying all this not just because we played that ridiculous song coming in, and we will on the way out too, but because I have this clip from Monty Python that I'm going to pull up here. Now, I've never been a big Monty Python guy. I've never been a big British humor guy. But you have to go backwards to find stuff now that would now if you did this now it would still be funny and in fact it might be funnier because you're parodying something happening now when they did it they were just doing something absurd now it's an actual parody of what's happening take a listen why are you always on about women stan i want to be one what i want to be a woman from now on I want you all to call me Loretta. What? It's my right as a man. Well, why do you want to be Loretta, Stan? I want to have babies. You want to have babies? It's every man's right to have babies if he wants them. But you can't have babies. Don't you oppress me. I'm not oppressing you, Stan. You haven't got a womb. Where's the fetus going to gestate? You're going to keep it in a box? Here, I've got an idea. Suppose you agree that he can't actually have babies, not having a womb, which is nobody's fault, not even the Romans, but that he can have the right to have babies. Good idea, Judith. We shall fight the oppressors for your right to have babies, brother. Sister, sorry. What's the point? What? What's the point of fighting for his right to have babies when he can't have babies? It is symbolic of our struggle against oppression. Symbolic of his struggle against reality. See, right? I mean, it, it really applies today more so than even when they did it. So I guess I appreciate the fact that they were so absurd that uh, that they were ahead of their time. But generally speaking, uh, I'm not really a Monty Python guy. 
Got to give them credit, though. Do love Holy Grail. Love that movie. That was by far their best movie, in my opinion, but there we are. We're almost out of time here. want to give a little time to play the rest of the Biden song. So here you go. On our way out, we'll see you on the other side of this hour. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. What am I doing here? My mind's going blank now. Where am I heading? I keep forgetting I'm president. Where am I? No idea. Get more at 971talk.com. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod. There is another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.